Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. Another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, and welcome back from the uh, Labor Day here in North America. Now, you know, everybody else had a Labor Day. I had uh, one extra day of work is what I had because I, I don't know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so everybody's out of the office. You know what that means? That means it's a great time to do upgrades and server migrations and all sorts of things that we couldn't do if you were there in your office working. Yeah, but that's relaxing, isn't it? I think so. In fact, I was telling so there's one of the one of the clients we have. She we're going. She opened a ticket, and you know, sitting there in front of my computer waiting for progress bars to finish. I got back to her and said, you know, here's the answer to your question. And she goes, oh, that's great. I'm having a great day off. I'm sorry that you're working. I'm like, don't be. I, if if you don't if if people didn't give me projects to work on, then I would just go create projects myself at my house to work on because I, I want to be doing stuff. I like staying busy. So I just like it that way. Steve, I had an interesting week. I suffered not one, not two, but three different failures all in one day on my home network. And I came out without a scratch in part because I had systems in place. So it started with a power surge. So 1130 at night, I'm laying there in bed and I'd fallen asleep. And all of a sudden I wake up to what can only be described as like, it almost sounded like an engine in the house and it was going like, and to the, even now, because I was, you know, in sleep stupor, I really didn't process what all was happening. But what I noticed was when I opened my eyes that my thermostat was going on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. And the Nvidia shield in the bedrooms going on, off, on, off. All these things are kind of going off. And so from that, I denoted others, oh, something not right happening with the power. And I look out my window and we had 80 mile an hour winds. So you've come on the program a few times. You're like, oh, Sioux Falls, blustery South Dakota. Yeah, no, 80 mile an hour winds, Steve. It was terrible. So the well, power. Well, we'll not get into a contest about who has more wind, but well, I, please I, continue. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'd win, but like it was enough that it took out my power. So it takes out the power. And I think to myself, well, that's not good, but there's nothing I can do about it now. Also, it's 1130. I have to be up at 445 so I can go and do a radio show. So I've, I kind of put it out of my mind. Move on with the rest of my night. Six o'clock, I wake up, 4.45, whatever it was, I wake up and it turns out power's back on. So I think to myself, ah, great, life is life is better. Well, not exactly. I go and look and nothing in my house is working. I have no internet. I don't even have access points so far as I can tell. Nothing is working. Can't figure out why. So I get through my morning talk show and I get back to the house and I go to start looking into things. First thing I notice, the switch is totally dead. My 48-port switch, dead. Well, I think, okay, well, get rid of that, replace that. So I order a new uh, re- replacement for that. Good news is those HP 48-port switches, the 370 waters, they're coming down in price. So the replacement one, I think, the one that I had down there was like hundred and some dollars when I bought it, whatever, five, six years ago. The replacement I ordered today was like 75 bucks. So there's the silver lining in all of this is they're getting, they're getting less expensive. Cable modem is dead, so I call the cable company, have them come out to do it. Fun little side story. The guy that showed up to do the service call, the last time I'd met him at a client in, at, a, at a client site, and at that time, his wife was pregnant. So when I saw him today, I learned that they had had their baby, and so then we, we geeked out about his baby for a little bit. But I get through the cable modem, and then I realize I was in the process first weekend of the month. You know what I do in the first weekend of the month? I do my backups, my offsite backups. So that was in the process of running. And of course, it got obliterated when the power went out in six ways from Sunday. So what I was left with was at a, at a dead switch, I a dead, I had a dead backup process, and I had a, a dead cable modem. And really what saved my bacon was I had two things. I had checklists and I had a 
a, a run book or a quick reference handbook. And the idea there was, and I actually, I stole this idea from a friend who's a pilot of mine. So there's a longer story that has its roots in a time where a friend and mine and I went to drive a bus full of missionaries to the airport and back. And somewhere throughout that process, we lost the bus halfway through the trip and had an unexpected prolonged period to talk. And that story, while comical in nature and in and of itself paints of a rather clear and direct illustration of my directional inabilities, but it's a digression from this story for another time. So I ask him, as we're sitting there, how do you fly planes? You're a pilot. How do you fly planes? All right, so it's a complicated series of steps, all the things. But yeah, but what's the first thing you do, Alex, when you get inside of a plane? He goes, well, it's easy. It's the, I, I do the pre-flight checklist. Well, then what? Well, then I do the instant start checklist. Well, then what? Run-up checklist, then the before ta- ta- you know, taxi checklist, then the takeoff checklist, then the after takeoff checklist, and the landing checklist, the power down checklist. And he goes, okay, how do you actually fly the plane? He goes, well, it's easy. Just follow the checklist. I'm like, oh, I'm not getting anywhere. But his point there was... It makes more sense if when you're going to be operating in a high critical environment like flying an aircraft, you can't just pull over to the side of the road and figure it out. You have to know right then what the answer is. And it turns out math and a little bit of thinking ahead of time will allow you to figure out things that you don't have to do on the fly. So, for example, they figure out at this point in the runway, I either need to be in the air or I need to abort the takeoff because past this point – I won't have a choice but to go into the air. If I try to abort the takeoff after this point, we mathematically can calculate based on the weight and the and the speed that I would be traveling and all those things. I'm going to run off the end of the runway and crash and die in a ball of fire. So at this point, no matter what, it's an easy decision. We hit this point. We're going to go into the air no matter what. And if there's another, of course, single engine plane, different story. But no matter what, we're going to go into the air. And then after that, we'll figure it out. And if we need to turn around and land or go somewhere else or whatever we have to do, we'll do it. But the decision is made ahead of time. And so I, I've taken that approach and I wrote out myself a series of checklists. Here's what I do uh, every month. Here's how I make the backups. Here's what this and one of those checklists is the backups have gotten obliterated. And this third thing is is completely dead in the water. How do I rebuild all of this stuff and, and how does all of this work? And so for those longer protocols, a quick reference handbook, step by step, here's what to install. Here's what to plug in. Here's what order to do this in. Run this command, this command, this command, this command. Here's the pool names. Here's the decryption keys. Everything I need is all in one easy to reference place. I'm not thinking. It's just monkey see, monkey do. And I get to the end of my QRH and lo and behold, there's all my data. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. This really worked. So my takeaways. So I I made I, I made a a calculated bet. I put the stuff that was irreplaceable and very expensive on a UPS, but UPSs aren't the answer to everything because the UPSs in and themselves cost money, right? So they're a thousand bucks. So if they get hit by lightning or something bad happens to them and it takes them out, that's an expensive thing. When I'm talking about a $70, $80 switch, I started to opt to say, okay, here are the important things I want backed up and I want under protection and under the UPS. The rest of these things can take their chances with a, a traditional you know, cyber power or whatever surge protector. We'll see what happens. But my takeaway, my takeaways were one, I haven't really felt the pain of losing all these devices. Set me back, you know, hundred bucks, I think for the cable modem and 70 bucks for the switch, but past that, those problems are easily fixable. And the data problem really wasn't an issue because the data existed in two other places. And so, yeah, the offsite, uh, you know, box got trashed a little bit. And so I had to rebuild that and yeah, it will take a while to copy 30 some plus terabytes of data back over to it. But at the end of the day, it's all going to work out fine, largely because I had a plan, stuck to the plan. I'd been testing the plan. So I knew all of those things were working when something unexpected, three unexpected things hit me all at the same time. Still felt like I came out feeling pretty good. Nice. It's good to have a good success story. So I understand you also kind of kind of stubbed your toe and are looking for some help from the community this week. Not exactly stubbed my toe, but um, as most people might be aware, if you've listened to the show, I don't carry my phone around with me. Um, And normally that's not not a big deal. Well, if it was, I'd just carry my phone around with me. But uh, when I'm out doing work in my yard, you know, I've got an acre or so behind me and I'm always out doing something in my yard. It's kind of cumbersome to carry my phone or even make sure it's in reach because on which tree did I leave it and so on. So I started thinking, I thought I'd ask the audience, how would you solve this problem? Because part of it was when you don't know how to phrase something, it's hard to search for something on the internet, right? It's much easier to ask somebody and have them interpret it. And I suppose I could have gone to the AI, but honestly, I trust our audience more. So my question is this, 
how would you or is it possible to have a Bluetooth extender that connects to your phone and your watch? So like a, a receiver and a sender at the same time. So uh, my watch will connect up to the I have a shed that's powered and my watch will connect to my phone out there. But as soon as I step past the, the, the door frame of that shed, you know, I lose connection. So I thought, well, maybe I can stick something in here that connects to my phone and always connect my watch to that. I found a lot of Bluetooth extenders for audio, but what I'm specifically interested in is making sure that my watch can stay connected so that if my wife sends me a, hey, where are you? Or it's time for lunch or something like that. I'm looking for the kids or the dog is out or some some silly such thing like that. I don't have to have my phone mm-hmm. on me in order for her to get a hold of me. So Dear audience, what would you do if you needed to make sure that your peripheral always stayed connected to your phone without carrying your phone? So here's my initial thought when you when you lay that out. My initial thought is, are we using the right tool for the right job? From the standpoint that, if you think about it, what you're really asking is, you want a device on your person that establishes connection so that you can receive communication, right? And so we arrive at Bluetooth, not necessarily because, oh, Bluetooth is the technology that most accurately fits that job description, but more because the watch is typically connected via Bluetooth. That's your chosen device that you've taken around. And so now it becomes, well, how do I expand the range of that? But I wonder if the question isn't more, what's the smallest device that has, you know, communication connectivity or Wi-Fi, and you know, would that be a way for you to? Because- no, because I can't. It can't be anything that's in pockets or something like that, because mm-hmm. uh, that'll get damaged. Like it has to be, uh, because oftentimes I'm lugging something heavy around, or like quite frequently, it's dead wood that I'm pulling out mm-hmm. of the ravine or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it has to be something like it can't be something that's sitting in my pocket because it's going to get damaged and banged around. I do have Wi-Fi. Across my property now, I ran, I trenched uh, Ethernet down into the ravine so that um, that is a possible solution, except that, again, I don't want to pull something out. And so it would have to be something that um, could have Telegram on it because that's how we communicate. And uh, the reason why the phone, the watch was picked is because most of those all electronic devices probably aren't going to do... You might be able to get something like Android-based. I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, we'll let the audience bat it around. If you have ideas for Steve, let him know. You can write in live at asknoahshow.com. Is there a way to extend his Bluetooth watch? Or, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out there, is there another way that you can think of that Steve can receive communication through a wearable device? Is there a better way to, to handle that? Write in live at asknoahshow.com. Steve, how about we answer other people's questions? Absolutely. Our first email comes in from Will. Will writes in and says, hey, guys, I love the show. It's my favorite podcast. I love every week. It's something different. Now, a few weeks ago, Noah did a great job talking about the shortcomings of FOSS camera systems. Would you guys be able to address what you would do? And if there was a FOSS choice, what would that be? Thanks, Will. So I want to start here, Steve. You actually just uh, have actually just stepped through this process yourself. Now, you're doing something a little bit different because it's not really for security so much as it is, I don't know, um, animal entertainment and and animal supervision maybe but can you can you talk a little bit about your camera project yeah so we ended up going with access cameras because they just have an rtmp feed that you can tap into and ultimately while the device itself and the firmware is probably not open it doesn't really matter to me in so far as i can talk to it with open devices so um after chatting with noah we were able to put it on the Home Assistant dashboard in a specific page, and my wife just pulls up the chicken coop page and watches her chickens uh, in full screen on pretty much any screen that she's around. So um, that has been very – She's she has enjoyed that. She told me that it was the best purchase that I've ever made. Um, you know, it's funny. The, the things that, that land with, with the non-tech people in our lives – So. Uh, when I put the front door cam on a uh, home assistant, so my wife had a dashboard and the promise with home assistant, how we adopted it in our house was my promise to her was you do this one app 
this one platform. And I promise you, going forward, if there's something that I expect you to interact with, door control system, access control system, camera control system, lighting control system, HVAC, whatever it is, I promise to somehow expose it via this thing. And the first time I got the, yeah, 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 I've heard that before, right? And when I added the front door cam to her, to her her dashboard, same kind of reaction. Like it's like this is the best thing ever, and it is like it's not technically complicated. It's not even really doing that much, and like you could just walk over there and look at the thing. But yeah, I don't know. There's something novel about hey, I pull this thing up and I I can just see the things that I want to see. And you know it it's uh, one of those things that even in in my case. So get back getting back to the camera question. Mm-hmm. Um, while we're exposing it via um, home assistant, you can only consume the feed. So like in this case, it's a pan tilt zoom camera and mm-hmm. you can't do those functions in home assistant. So, but she's okay with every once in a while pulling up the camera interface if she wants to like change where it's looking. So I'm not sure how that fits in with how Sarah might do things. It is a little bit of an odd case because most people are probably not doing the PTZ cameras. They're probably doing the stationary ones, in which case it wouldn't really matter where you're watching it from. Yep. Yep. And we, so ours are all stationary. If I want other views, I just typically get more cameras. And then Axis is really nice. The model number escapes me off the top of my head. There's one sitting at the shop, but it's essentially four cameras in one housing. I can point all four cameras in a different direction. And it's really good if you're in like you want one of those things like I want to see the whole room, but I don't want like a panoramic fisheye. Everything is blurry at the edges kind of a thing. Those cam- those little four head camera things are fantastic. Um, so, OK, so what do you what do you use if open source camera systems leave something to be desired? So in that episode, what I'd referenced was most people want a very seamless app experience. And so where where the open source has some uh opportunity to grow is there are absolutely platforms out there like ZoneMinder, which I do believe have a mobile app. So one would think that's, you know, that's fine. But if you've used the system, if you've, if you've set it up and you've used it, the UI is just different from what is out, out there from commercially available products. The other part of it is when people install the app, they're typically the experience that they're used to is they download an app, they put in a username, they put in a password, they're signed in and they're good to go. When it comes to businesses, we've typically used Synology surveillance station. Do you have to buy a Synology product? Yes. Is it proprietary? Yes. But the app experience is fantastic. It is self-hosted. The way they do their licensing is you own it for life. So to compare and contrast that for you, there is a Vigilon, and I can't, there's another company, the name escapes me, starts with an M, but those are the two main companies that use, uh, or that are used in in high-end security cameras. So you go to like, uh, like Las Vegas or something like that, chances are you're going to run into uh, to, to, to one of these larger systems. And the way that they license is they will, you know, you charge per per camera. So first of all, some of these things, they just have to run on Windows, which is that's a non-starter for me. But then on top of that, you purchase the license for a lot of these things. And if you want to upgrade, so let's say you buy a camera license. Well, they have a perpetual fee. You got to pay every year. What happens if you don't? Well, your camera system will continue to work, but you go to add a ninth camera and they look back and say, well, it's been 10 years that you've had these eight cameras. Well, they back charge you for the eight years of the perpetual camera license that they said you should have paid before they'll let you buy a ninth camera and stuff like that. And again, there's some of them that will run on Linux. There's some of them that sell pre-built boxes on Linux, big names, and they're good. They work Okay. But that sort of licensing thing just stamps it out for me. I'm just, I'm, it's gross to me. And so Synology, while proprietary and while requiring the purchase of their hardware, A, it's inexpensive. You can buy their, uh, you can buy a disk station off of eBay for 100, 200 bucks in some cases. B, once you buy those uh, license packs for cameras, you have them for life. So you put them on the device and, and it's yours and you can move them from one device to the other. I've done that. I, because I'm anal retentive, I'll activate the licenses 
and then I clone Zilla the image at the drive. So even if Synology ceased to exist tomorrow, I'd still have the opportunity uh, to use the camera systems and it works really, really great. Now you partner that with access cameras like Steve was talking about, and it's, it's just a phenomenal experience. And we've, I've put them up against the largest systems, the, the, the most well-named known companies out there. And it's a Linux box running with ButterFS on access cameras. And it, the experience is fantastic, even to people that sit and watch cameras all day for a living. They're still impressed, which tells me a lot. If the, the, I keep an eye on everything open source, because at the end of the day in my life, if it isn't open source, then it's just a placeholder. It's just a stopping grounds while we pause, while we wait for the open source thing to get there. Today, if you're willing to tweak the UI or you're willing to, to put some setup time into it, you can get there with Home Assistant. You absolutely can. Or excuse me, with uh, ZoneMinder. Uh, I... Again, I have, you know, they, they have an Android app, so you can download it. It's ZM Ninja, and it's going to require a little bit of self-hosting love. But you can get there, right? You can have dynamic DNS. You can have it update a static DNS entry. So you can give your client or the person that wants to view it a static website that they can go to that is updated with their dynamic IP. You can get there. The other project, though, that I think looks absolutely fantastic they have a mobile app. They are they are making a headway right and left is Shinobi, S-H-I-N-O-B-I. And it's an open source uh, CCTV platform that has a phenomenal UI, is is very modern, very responsive, open source, written in Node.js, easy to set up, easy to use. They had some problems with it running out of resources early on. I'm told that those have been... Um, squared up and and fixed up, but admittedly, I haven't used it myself recently, so I can't tell you that for sure. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning about Shinobi, and this is maybe an issue for a larger discussion, their model is, so the code's open source, you have it all the things. If you want to use it in a commercial setting, they want you to buy a license. Now, so far as I can tell, the license is on the honor system, meaning there's nothing to really check to see if you're using it for professional or, or residential or you know personal use. It's really more on the honor system. There were a couple of people at my company that kind of looked at that sideways and went, we're going to, if we're going to invest in something open source, then this kind of goes against our nature having, you know, license and all that it's let's donate to an open source project. If we're going to donate to an open source project, but we should not really be monkeying around with these licenses. And, and my thought on it is, I am okay with companies trying to monetize or make the money back for the value that they add to open source. That is to say, as long as the code is eventually up there on GitLab or GitHub, which it absolutely is with Shinobi, I can go take it and I can use it. So you're not, you're not, you're not depriving me. You're not handcuffing me into doing anything. It's just, you have put work out there. And for people that are going to make money off of the work, you're asking them to contribute back to the project in a very direct way. And so you have a pro uh, use. And if you click on pro use, then it has, you know, the availability and the pricing to, to buy license. And I think it does come up with some other things like they, they do some brokering of mobile access and some extended features on, on mobile apps and stuff like that. And of course they give you updates and, and those kinds of things. But I don't know that I'm necessarily against having, a separate license here, a separate thing that you have to purchase for, for professional. Here is where my reservation starts with Shinobi though. Their license is the Shinobi open source software license agreement, not the GPL, not the AGPL, you know, not the Apache license, but the Shinobi open source software license agreement. So who the heck knows exactly what all that means? I mean, you can go read it, I guess, if you're an attorney and you could figure out, but uh, it, it, I don't know. It's just, it keeps me lukewarm. So if you know of a project, if there's something out there that you're using and you say, hey, no, this works really great. I would love to hear about it right in at live at asknoahshow.com. The other thing that I've been keeping an eye on, and I, I actually I threw this out at Steve to see if this is something that he was interested in. And primarily, he's just interested in the live stuff. So it, it wasn't really applicable. But Frigate Frigate is an open source NVR that's built around AI object detection. And so 
it is designed to run inside of Home Assistant. So the idea there is you attach your camera feeds to Frigate, which is running as a Home Assistant module, and then you do most of the interaction through Home Assistant and could do a, a multiplex and or recording that way. And did you ever end up looking into it, even if it wasn't right for you or even if it didn't fit your use case? Uh, no, because we only have one camera at this time, it was going to be... Um, if I was going to get something for the garage, for example, I was going to consider doing something like that. But honestly, once the access camera just got auto detected by home system, like, oh, well, she's yeah. happy. Done. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. I, you know, and I'd be interested to hear from people on that, too. So where do you stand with stuff that is like you say, the access cameras, they're technically not open source, but they're so stupidly open and available. And oh, by the way, their support is fantastic that. Everything is published and, and works, so you want to bring your camera feed into OBS, man, they, they support that. You, you plug it in and Home Assistant sees it. You don't really have to do anything. You just say configure, give it a username and password, and there it is. Now it works. Yep. Our second email comes in from Joe. Joe writes in and says, hey, ANS team, longtime listener, first time writing in. So I'm looking to embark on the world of self-sufficiency and self-hosting. To put it bluntly, I'm failing. I've tried virtualizing my system using libvirt. As suggested, I find... Vert, man Vert Manager to be extremely confusing. Right now, my VM does not boot because I tried to attach a USB drive. After plugging in the USB drive, it broke the VM. Do you guys know of any series of tutorials or could you give me any information as to how I can get started without wanting to pull out what little hair I have left? Thanks, Joe. So, Steve, what would you say to a newcomer of LibVert and, you know, Vert Manager and, and LibVert D? Hmm. That's a tough one because if you're not interested in learning the more um, hmm. let's say going and looking under the covers a bit more to understand what, what's happening with virtualization, LibVirt might not be the thing for you. It could be. I would say, I would honestly say, take a look at GNOME Boxes as the front end for it because it does a good job of getting you to the, what, let's say a, uh, oh man, what's a, the competitor that Oracle works, VirtualBox. It gets yeah. you closer to a VirtualBox experience than Vert Manager. Vert Manager is for like a system administrator that yes. knows how to tweak VMs and wants wants to be able to do things like add a SCSI drive or pass this thing through or or whatever, right? So I guess, Joe, it depend on what your target is. Are you just wanting to run a VM here or there to play around? Are you trying to set up VM infrastructure? It's not quite clear. If you're trying to set up VM infrastructure, uh, it, it goes back to ultimately you're trying to figure out how do I, how do I do a thing with a computer? And when you have, if you took this out and said, forget about VMs, let's pretend that this is a, a physical machine and you plugged in a drive that the physical machine, you told the physical machine, this should be here. And then you yank that drive out, mm -hmm. the physical machine would also panic. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it really depends. The tutorial that you're looking for depends on the level at which you are trying to get your knowledge up to speed, I would say. So it's interesting this guy writes in. So my dad had not a dissimilar experience. So again, kind of referencing the whole thing. So Steve gets him onto Arch with Libvert, solves every problem that he has. He's ecstatic across them. But same thing bit him, right? He plugged in a hardware device and then tried to boot the VM with the USB cable unplugged. And of course the VM goes, oh, you want me to directly pass this hardware device to? No problem. I'll just grab it over. Wait, where did it go? It's not here. What happened to it? I don't know what to do. Stop, right? And that is not intuitive to people who have not used that before. So Gnome Boxes is a great suggestion. Um, Tiny in the, in, in the Geek Lab also suggests using cockpit machines. So that's of interest. Um, so Steve is not going to like that suggestion. And I understand why, because if you when you start getting into some of the nitty gritty details, there's entire functionality that's not yet built into cockpit machines. And I'm sure they're going to get there, but it isn't there yet. So if given the choice between the two tools of Vert Manager and, and machines, most system administrators today are going to are going to err on the side of vert manager because it has all of the things there and if not that verse but where cockpit machines can be really approachable is it has that same level of like if you've ever used uh you know like uh, oh, vmware wasn't isn't a bad example or there's a more direct one i think proxmox you know where you've just got a web ui and you click on the machine you want and you can make some of the changes and those sorts of things as far as actually passing storage through 
I, I would say, like, start from a known quantity and work your way backwards. So, for example, the VM worked when I first installed it. What did I change? Oh, yeah, I added that USB thing. Well, let me try and undo that step and then see if it goes back to working and just kind of keep track of those things for a little bit. Um, and I think that'll help a lot. And I would tell you, as a person who spends, I mean, half my day is spent inside of, uh, you know, a, a, a terminal, an email client, a, a, a chat program, or vert manager managing those machines. And oftentimes when I'm dev or if I'm testing something, I'll put it onto my laptop and I'll run the VMs or I'll run an entire cluster of network things there and try things out on my laptop. And there's been multiple times where I've gotten lost inside of a VM and I've forgotten that I'm in the VM and not on the host machine because it's that good. Um, you know, if it's running locally and all those things. So I might suggest maybe having a little bit of patience with vert manager and uh, I'll keep my eye out for a tutorial, but like Steve said, you're going to have a hard time finding a tutorial unless you're looking for like, okay, I'm going down the route of system administration. Oh, there's going to be plenty of tutorials from that. But you're using very powerful, very adult grown-up tools to, and so they're not going to hold your hand. You've asked that all the, you know, the, all the chains be taken off and give access to all those levers. You've been given all those levers. Now use it responsibly, so to speak. And just the last thing on that, whenever... Whenever you're trying to port the idea of hot plugging into a VM, that doesn't really translate uh, because the VM right. has to know that the, the hardware is there. So if you attach a device that to your desktop is, is hot pluggable, to the VM it's not, right? Mm -hmm. It's looking for that path of a thing. And so it really is analogous to uh, taking a, a physical hard drive, plugging it in and telling the computer, okay, you're going to boot off this hard drive or at least this hard drive is required to start the computer, and then you go and take that hard drive out. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what you've done to the VM. Pretty much all of the hardware is going to fail in a similar way. It's just hard drives are a lot more... Uh, let us let me rephrase but it. I don't, I don't they think are a lot less flexible. I don't think Vert Manager will let you boot something with, with hard drive, with any sort of hardware pass-through that isn't present. Correct. I don't think it matters what it, it is. Will just, yeah. It'll just uh, bail on you. And, you know, I believe VirtualBox used to do that, too. Uh, mm -hmm. It will just, it VirtualBox fails more gracefully. Like it popped, it's been a couple of years, but it used to pop up and say, hey, you said that there's this USB device, but I don't have it. And then you have to click OK. And then, you know, or you said this was a USB 3 device, but I only see it as USB 2. And then you have to go and, and futz around with that. So it did a better job at, at surfacing the error in a human readable way, but it still had them. Micah writes in and says, is there any specialty hardware that you guys are only able to use, maybe even rely on daily because of an open source project, reverse engineer it to work on Linux? For example, the, the Stream Deck is only usable on Linux thanks to projects like Stream Deck UI and Boatswain. So, yeah, man, what a fantastic question. So the Steam Deck definitely comes top of list. And I would also add BitFocus Companion to that. BitFocus just revolutionized the power and flexibility of, of the stream deck. I mean, it's just, it is unbelievable all the things that you can do if you're willing to take the time to set up software that goes with it. But other notable examples that come to mind, Sophos. So I have, we've almost whole hog switched when we have people that say, hey, I'm looking for a good deal on a router. Go grab an, a, a Sophos SG210. You can get them for less than a high. We bought one this week for 75 bucks. A client had a router die, said, hey, we don't have a thousand bucks to buy. A, they were going to replace a NetGate with it and said, hey, go grab a, a Sophos SG210, load it up with OpenSense or PFSense, whatever you like, and 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 set it up. Fantastic piece of hardware. Ordinarily would be proprietary. I wouldn't use Sophos to save my life, but the hardware is absolutely fantastic. Purpose, purpose built for routing. And at the end of the day, it's just an Intel board on the inside. So those things work great. Unify access points. So... OpenWRT has images for the old Unify access points, and they have a really frustrating, we'll call it feature, and it's a growing pain in my nerves, but Unify, after a certain firmware version, will not allow you to, so there's old, like the, like the, you have some of the older access points, after a certain point, they will no longer allow you to change anything in the network, period, if you have a quote-unquote unsupported device there. Now, you might say, but Noah, I'm not doing anything more with my access point. In fact, it works just fine, has worked just fine. All I want to do is be able to run the newest version of the controller or at least stay up to date. I don't even care if I get security updates or whatever to the controller itself. Maybe have it isolated. Maybe have it on its own VLAN. Maybe I can't talk out to the internet. No, they won't let you use any unified device on the system if you have 
one device that is that is that is too far out in their EOL. So to address that, OpenWRT has breathed new life into a lot of these devices by publishing images that you can flash onto them and use it. Another example, the Google Pixel, right? You purchase it and, and Google will give you support for the three to five years and then, then it's host. But thanks to Lineage OS, thanks to uh, Graphene OS, Postmarket OS, they push life back into these devices for years to come beyond what the manufacturer intended you to do. Microsoft Surface, original generation, has to be coming up on 10 years old at this point. Still works flawlessly with Linux, and even though Microsoft isn't necessarily interested in supporting them, you can pull the Generation 1 out, you can load Linux on it, the touch works, the keyboard works, the trackpad works, the little pen works. They're fantastic little devices. Steve, do you have any devices that you've looked at and said, man, if it wasn't for open source software, I wouldn't be able to use this because it only was available with proprietary stuff? Pretty much all of my smart plugs that I started out with, I wouldn't I wouldn't have used them. So most of the tinkering and the home automation that I get into... I just flat out refuse to use something that isn't open. So that that's an entire swath of things that, that I would not have uh, supported if it didn't have open source hard uh, software to go with it. Two bit in the chat room says, are there any smart plugs out there that will work with home assistant and two prong outlets without the need of a three to two prong adapter? So Steve, I'll let you take this one. Have you, have you come across anything like that? So it, the answer is not that you want to buy, at least in North America, because UL certification, which is basically the thing that um, if you if you have a fire in your house and the insurance finds out that it that you had something plugged in that wasn't UL certified, you're on the hook. So UL certification requires a grounding plug, at least here in it in my state and in most of the um, the NEC, so the North American Electrical um, Standards. Mm-hmm. So. With that said, the the circular prong is the grounding plug, which is usually what what is quote unquote missing. Uh, it's very dangerous to to not have a grounding plug, especially in an outlet. So my my first question is, what's the real use case here? And the second the second thought is, well, Lutron does have some of these. I've never used them, and I couldn't find any UL certification for them either. And aside from that. I couldn't really dig up much in in this way because, like I said, you can buy unsafe devices, and I'm sure that there might be some out there. They're going to be pretty hard to find. So, Penguin yeah. Penguin Prince in the chat room says, Noah, what's going on with GNOME 45? Just read an article saying that it will cause all the extensions to break. So... The short version of this is the GNOME platform libraries are primarily written in C. And as part of that, GNOME has what they call GJS, which, which so far as I can tell, is GNOME's custom take on JavaScript. Well, back in 2015, they switched over to something called ECMA Script 6, which standardizes these modules and has all of the correct syntax to be supported by all JavaScript engines. So that's great. Except for they had to port GNOME Shell all at once from GJM over to this ECM, uh, ECMA script six. And so because it had to be all done at once, they waited until they were ready because it was a massive, massive deal to do that. And the downside to moving GNOME Shell to ECMA script six is the modules are loaded differently than scripts and from some statements, name specifically the import and export, are only valid in modules, which means if you're trying to import a module that has legacy system, a legacy system, it's going to result in a syntax error. And so modules also hide anything that's outside that isn't explicitly exported. And so while it's technically possible to import a script as a module, it's kind of like importing an empty file. That's a really long way of saying that extensions that target the older GNOME systems are not going to work in GNOME 45. Likewise, extensions that are adapted to work with GNOME 45 are not going to work in older versions um, because of that move from, from, the, from the interpreter. So that's, in a nutshell, what it is. We'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.snoshow.com. The, the uh, GNOME Foundation has, in a blog, a write-up that goes into a bit more detail, um, but that's it in a nutshell. Masif uh, wrote in via the Geek Lab. So this was a conversation that occurred earlier today. 
And he said, hey, everyone, I'm very new to open source. Could you please guide me on how to start to choose my first open source project to work with? And so my response back was, well, there's essentially I can think of three ways. You can find a pet project, something in your life that you want to, to hack on. You can take somebody else's project. There's plenty of them there. Or you can sell your services to people that are willing to pay you to work on open source. So, Steve, you had an interesting interaction with Tube Archivist after uh, after talking about it last episode. And that led to you contributing to an open source project. Yeah. So last episode, just as a recap, really quickly, Tube Archivist is a thing that helps you um, manage YouTube backups locally so that it gives you a nice web interface so that, you know, you can view it by channel and all the rest of that. And one of the things that I, I wanted to use it for was a way to allow my children access to YouTube without having them go wandering. And so currently Tube Archivist is a single user platform, which means that every user you create has all of the access to do all of the things, download channels and delete videos and all the rest of that. And so I contacted the project and um, I made a feature request and I got talking to the, uh, to the main developer there and ultimately found out that the, the project's written in Python and that's something I can dig into. And so there I'm going to help add a multi-user context to the application so that eventually it's going to have its own, like each user will have its own watch list and so on um, and its own channel list and, and all that rest of that kind of stuff. But as part of that, um, I'm breaking it into smaller PRs. So the first PR went in this week, uh, which basically just simply removes things like the download button or the ability to delete or re-index files or things like that. If you are not a user of specific groups or you haven't been designated um, in as staff. So in, in this Python web framework, there's a built-in that's called is staff. And so at any rate, uh, I submitted that pull request after deving on it here. And that was one of those things. That's kind of how I got interested in Mycroft too, is there was, there was some little niggly bug in Mycroft that I went in and I fixed because it didn't handle commas properly. Um, and that was, that was problematic for me at the time. And so essentially what Noah is saying is a lot of times it's hard to, to try and like pick a project to get involved in, especially when you're like, oh, I want to get involved in GNOME or I want to get involved in one mm. of these big projects, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the thing that everybody knows. Well, you could try just looking at the little projects that you use from time to time and see if they need any help with anything. So as a, for instance, one of the things you can do, I know, pe I know people roll their eyes whenever you say get involved in the documentation, but sometimes it's not about writing the actual documentation and making it better. Sometimes it's just going in and fixing dead links. So in this case, Tube Archivist has a bunch of links that are dead that because the, the documentation has been rearranged at some point. And so you don't have to be a coder in order to actually go in and open up, as long as you can open up a file and find the old link and change it to the pro appropriate link, you don't have to be a coder to even do that. And that is massively helpful to the project because people that are going into Tube Archivist and clicking on the link to the wiki, getting a 404 is kind of disheartening and they don't even know like why they're getting that. So th there's easy ways to get involved if you are you know, just out there exploring software. You know, you asked in the chat room for a specific recommendation. The one that comes to mind, Remina. It's a project that's largely being discontinued because the, the developer just, you know, it's, he's, he's out of steam and nobody has really expressed interest in taking that project on. And I can tell you, I've seen firsthand, there are entire swaths of companies that use it for accessing stuff. And largely what they're doing is they go find a, a you know, a proprietary alternative or something else to use to, to, to get it there. And so, you know, stuff like that. Now, of course, there's other open source ones like X2Go. I think the client will support RDP and stuff like that, too. But there's plenty of them out there. So I would encourage you to go find something either that you have an interest in. That's, that's preferable because developers scratching their own itch always yields a better product than my estimation. But if not, go find something that's very, very useful. And if you have, an, if you have a recommendation, if you're listening to this and you say, ah, you know what? Here's a project that really could use some love. Write in. Live at AskNoahShow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of September 3rd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. 
GNOME 45 will break compatibility with extensions for earlier versions of GNOME. The Regolith desktop has released version 3.0, and the Budgie desktop has released version 10.8. Mozilla has released Firefox 117 and Thunderbird 115. Vanilla OS has released its alpha build developer preview named Orchid. Ohio Linux Fest has released their 2023 schedule. And SE Linux in the Linux 6.6 kernel will be removing its references to its origins at the NSA. Also related to the kernel, Riser FS is now marked as obsolete and should be removed by 2025. And the Linux 6.6 kernel is also changing the way modules operate to better protect against the illicit behavior of NVIDIA's proprietary kernel driver. With the use of some clever emulation layers, Ampere makes Steam gaming on its 192-core ARM processor possible and AMD open-sources its SEV, Secure Encrypted Virtualization Firmware. Navin joins us from Red Hat. He is the Chief Architect Leader in the CTO office, and I guess we'll start with this. Can you tell me a little bit about your role as the Chief Architect Leader and, and what you do at Red Hat? It's a global re- leader, uh, global role, and um, basically consider me to be more like a playing captain rather than a coach on the sidelines. Okay. And what I mean by that is I lead the network of chief architects at Red Hat, and I am a chief architect myself. Um, let me first talk about what chief architects do and then the role that I play. Um, chief architects at Red Hat, they have a broad, wide area of coverage, as in they would be the chief architect for a country, for an industry, for a region in North America, and so on. And they would be actually you know, kind of like the bird's eye view of the types of customers we are working with, the types of business challenges mm-hmm. that they are faced with, and what would be the approach to address those challenges, and what patterns do they see and how and why and where do technologies that Red Hat espouses actually benefit the customers for outcomes, right? Now, chief architects, in addition to um, listening to the customer, they would also take those and then take it back to our engineering teams to see how can our portfolio of solutions and services do better to be of, you know, uh, make a difference for the customers they serve. Mm-hmm. And then... Finally, we actually uh, collaborate amongst ourselves, as in because we are out there in that strategic role, we have a you know, global coverage and mm-hmm. we can, you know, the chief architect in Germany can actually reach out to the one in APAC and in Australia and see, hey, what's going on there? And uh, thus, we come out with best practices and techniques and architectures and validated patterns that customers can readily adopt. My role, in addition to doing what chief architects do, is to how do we uh, collaborate? What are those techniques and practices that we use to actually share the knowledge and also you know, be that bridge between engineering at Red Hat and the sales and services that we provide to our customers and partners? How many chief architects are there? 38, to be precise. Uh, but the idea is uh, I think we will continue to grow but that is, um, it has been roughly in the 40 to 45 mark, so to speak, over the last few years. Yeah. And is it an equal, is it an equally beneficial relationship? You talk about this two-way street. One, in one role, you're going out to the customer and you're understanding what their environment looks like, what Red Hat solutions are most applicable for them and how they can best leverage that for their advantage. And at the same time, you're going the other direction. You're going back and saying, I've run into this friction or I've run into this challenge that we weren't, you know, we could, we could maybe solve this better. You're then communicating that back to Red Hat engineers so that they can continually develop their products to better meet the demands of clients. Is is that an equal streak, or do you find yourself, you know, it's we do a little bit upstream coming back from the customer back to Red Hat, but by and large, what we're doing is helping, you know, taking technologies that Red Hat has developed and putting them into customer hands. Great question. I would um, tweak your question a bit as in let's think and let's talk in plurals okay, rather than singular. So you have the account teams that are directly serving the needs of a customer, a partner, and so on. Chief architects typically look at multiples. So it's not just one airline, but what do airlines need? Or what do retailers need? Or what do companies who are looking at uh, modernizing to the cloud need? That's a pretty broad spectrum. Mm -hmm. But there are different ways to slice the pie. So 
Yes, uh, to your point about taking the feedback, the feedback is really synthesized across multiple such conversations that chief architects may have had directly or through solution architects and other account team members, mm-hmm. right? But then um, when we actually go turn around and talk to our own engineering teams, <clears throat> there is a realization. I went through that metamorphosis myself. I used to think that customers are uh, difficult to work with, as in, you know, there are different lines of business, you know, enterprise of enterprises, and each uh, unit tends to operate differently and, and so on. So when I say difficult, you know, it is not like you can apply the same approach to across the enterprise. Global enterprises are different as they should be. So that's not a surprise. But when I turned around and started working with our own engineering teams, I realized that's true of us too. You know, full disclosure, it's not like everybody in engineering, all the product units think the same. Mm -hmm. Because after all, they are working, you know, it's a portfolio of products, but then it is also, you know, different products do different things. Each one is a business in its own right. So Mm -hmm. turning around, I went through that, um, you know, the metamorphosis of, oh, we as chief architects have to make a business case mm-hmm. to our own engineering teams mm-hmm. to justify spending time on a feature request or a strategic you know uh, market segment to grow in mm-hmm. you know the, the all the right questions are asked you know why should we invest valuable engineering time here is there a market for this are customers interested in this is this technology area is that like a science fair project it is cool but is the you know yes we are uh, in business to make money like any other company. So we have to go through that business justification to our own teams as well. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I turn around and I work with us as a customer. So that was a revelation, Noah. Wow, that's that's fascinating to think about. So you're serving both sides of it. You're serving Red Hat as a customer. You're serving clients, plural, as, as a customer. Uh, let me add something to that. So let's say a chief architect actually unpacks that for his or her region, um, we come back and we collectively uh, ask ourselves, have you seen this pattern? And let's collaborate on making a business case to ourselves. Okay. Or if there is a customer need, let's make collaborate ourselves to help this customer or this area of uh, customers. So that col- global collaboration, you we think globally, but act locally. I like that. Can you talk a little bit about your strategy and help me understand where the business cases or where the value proposition is in things in technologies like blockchain? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand how, you know, in the cryptocurrency world and, and so on and so forth, it's a means to an end. How does that fit in with businesses and business practices? So that happens to be an area where we have not directly invested in as much. We, it is a um, our time frame for investment is more in the six to eighteen months okay. time frame. So, uh, if you talk to our CTO mm-hmm. uh, Chris Wright, um, I will never try to say this is exactly what he's going to say. But the time frame, uh, what I have heard him say rather. You know, um, when we look ahead, it is re- usually about the projects that we are actually contributing to in the open source community in the next 6 to 12 to 18 month time frame. Because uh, it's not like, let's think three to five years out and so on, not that far out. Because the open source projects typically tend to operate in that, uh, you know, time frame in the, in, the, in, that, in the community. And what we do is we would actually see the level of adoption for different technologies and then selectively bring that into our platform and secure it and harden it and so on. We have not, blockchain is kind of out there. Yes, there is some Mm -hmm. adoption when it comes to the financial industry and, you know, other industries, but we, other than, you know, being a platform for any technology, including blockchain, we have not directly invested in that particular area. Now, I will tell you that uh, in addition to the products team, in the CTO office, we have one team called the Emerging Technologies team. Okay. We actually, there is a booth for Emerging Technologies at the Red Hat Summit in Boston. Um, the idea there is to um, have Red Hat engineers take the lead. There are like a million projects going on at any point of time. And then, you know, have Red Hat engineers contribute to certain projects and then see where is it headed. Mm-hmm. Is there adoption? And that's like 15 to 20. Next.redhat.com is where people can actually track that. And truth be told, six months from now, if you ask me, Noah, maybe some of the projects may not be there. Sure. You know, it's not there because, hey, this is the next big thing or something. 
we are experimenting, we are researching, we are collaborating, we are innovating to see if this is going anywhere. And if it doesn't, okay, see you. You know, mm-hmm. so that's the kind of the approach. Blockchain is somewhat in that category for us mm-hmm. at this time. So if you can excuse the metaphor here, you would kind of describe it almost like a bus. The industry determines and tells you where the bus is going. You just sit in the driver's seat and kind of respond to say, hey, here's a piece of technology they're interested in. Okay, we'll bring that on board. Okay, we'll develop that. We'll put efforts into it. And you're looking, I think you said you're looking to that six months or so out. And and the rationale behind that is you don't want to get too far ahead of the technology. Do I understand that right? Yeah, that that's right. Well, we would rather see adoption mm-hmm. of the technology first before actually bringing it on board to our platform and investing to secure it, to harden it, to make it enterprise grade. And because, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, you go to somebody, a lead contributor in the open source community, and you ask them, so what's the roadmap for this product? Don't be surprised if you get an answer like, um, heck if I care. You know, I'm doing this because I'm having fun coding, right? So who cares where this is in five years and so on? But once it is productized, you ask the Red Hat product manager, Mm -hmm. they better have an answer. Here is the roadmap. Here are the releases. Here are the features. Now it is an enterprise-grade product, right? Big difference from an open source project, Mm. right? So um, that's uh, how we actually determine you know, um, when to, uh, you know, actually even productize it. Because by the time it is productized, it's not like we come out with a product and then look for the market. Mm. We know there is adoption and thus there is, you know, it, it is worthy of uh, investment of engineering time. What are some of the upcoming emergence, uh, emerging technologies that you're excited about or that you're working on? Yep. So uh, we are seeing a lot of traction for maybe containers is something that we have been, you know, we have written the book on, I would like to claim. But we are seeing the adoption of containers move to the edge. So it is not just about containers, you know, in the cloud, in the data center, in the backend servers and so on. With the number of edge devices uh, that are proliferating at any time, the question is being asked, why should the benefits of containers be restricted to like the bare metal servers, the virtualized environments more in the data center? Why can't it be on the edge devices? So you go to a retailer, you're checking out there is a point of sale device or there are camera devices or in the medical industry, you have different monitors and, you know, um, health related devices. So, you know, edge devices is, uh, you know, I think sometimes I wonder maybe there are more devices than humans on the planet, you know. Uh-huh. So um, we could adopt the same DevOps containers, that DevSecOps, that all those approaches there as well. We are seeing uh, that get a lot of traction. Um, then we are seeing the concerns about security. So you will see, in fact, um, at the event that we are here, there's going to be a lot of talk about uh, you know, the software supply chain, mm-hmm. having a trusted application pipeline. And so how do you know that you know, the software that is being you know, taking, taken through the DevOps cycle, how, how do you know that it is secure? Mm-hmm. And having the right mechanisms in place to ensure the security of what comes out the door mm-hmm. as part of you know, ingrained into the process. Mm-hmm. We are seeing for obvious reasons a lot of traction there as well. And finally, the other area that uh, my leader always advises me, always have three bullets, not more, not less. So mm-hmm. the third bullet to, in response to your question is sustainability. Okay. So uh, the, many companies are actually being driven to, um, you know, not just what they are doing to control emissions and all that, but, the, you know, what are some technological investments that they are making mm-hmm. in order to, uh, the, for sustainable outcomes, mm-hmm. right? And that is getting a lot of traction and attention as well. So there are open source projects that we are taking the lead on, on from a sustainability standpoint. So those are the top three that come to mind. Wow.
The music in my ears means we're out of time. Hey, thanks for listening this hour. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Kurt Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. Hey, we invite you to go over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where you'll find all of the articles and references we use to make the show each and every week. We'll see you back here next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. 